Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. Today, for the 10th and final episode of our series on American identities, we'll be hearing from Adrian Davis, professor of law and vice provost here at Washington University in St. Louis. In her teaching, Professor Davis focuses in part on what has been called the law of daily life, things like contracts and trusts and estates. In her recent research, she examines daily life from a different angle, one that is very much bound up with ideas of identity. What are the intersections between American law and the personal attachments and intimate lives of Americans? To explore this type of idea, Davis has researched topics that might surprise you. Here's Professor Davis. So the last few years I've explored separately polygamy in the United States, sex work in the United States, and most definitely in the United States pet inheritance. You heard that right. Polygamy, prostitution, and pet inheritance. By pet inheritance, Davis means cases of people leaving large amounts of money to their pets. The most famous case is Leona Helmsley, who left $12 million to her tiny dog Trouble in 2007. Davis is working on a book that brings together all these topics, which might leave you wondering, what do polygamy, prostitution, and pet inheritance have in common? At face value, polygamy, prostitution, and pet inheritance don't have anything in common. (laughs) You know, people look at me and they just say, well, gee, you know, these are obviously socially marginalized practices, and the inquiry is the product of my own quirky, quixotic legal mind. But each of these projects, I argue, shares a common conceptual structure. And I think what these things are, and what I want to take up in my book, is that these three legal outliers are all examples of what I call irregular intimacy. So each of these types of intimacy are seen as outside of normal behavior. They're things that many Americans would find unacceptable. And as Davis examines, this cultural attitude is reflected in the laws of the land. I talk about how each one implicates the legal regulation of intimacy in a most fundamental way. So the criminalization of polygamy and the criminalization of prostitution and the routine judicial rejection of these bequests to pets remind us of not only the power, but of the capaciousness of law to regulate intimate life. According to Davis, these types of regulations illustrate how our intimate lives and our political lives are more tightly intertwined than you might think. So what I'm really intrigued by is how in the United States, which is you know obviously sort of the grand experiment of post-Enlightenment liberalism, many people kind of think about that as an experiment about politics. And they think about, well, your intimate life is over here, it's at home, or it's in the restaurant. It's completely separate from your formal political life as an American citizen. And instead, I think what these histories show us is that understandings of the family and particularly concepts of what the family and intimacy and attachment should look like, frequently are put in political terms. For an example, let's turn to the first research topic Davis brought up, polygamy. So polygamy in the 19th century, when we were trying to essentially eradicate Mormonism in the United States, 
Polygamy was condemned in language that called it the twin pillar of barbarism. The other pillar of barbarism was slavery. Now, that was a long time ago, but in general, this attitude toward polygamy has persisted. Even today, I've got very smart colleagues, like a very smart a law professor named Morris Strasberg, who condemns polygamy as not only you know, harmful to women and children, she condemns it as despotic and anti-democratic. In addition to condemning religious groups that continue to illegally practice polygamy in the U.S., this judgment has affected the way Americans perceive other cultures that practice polygamy in places like Africa and the Middle East. And according to Davis, this is all bound up in the American ideal of spreading democracy. Underlying this, obviously, then, is the notion that monogamy is what the good citizen practices in their intimate life. So instead of seeing intimacy on the one side of life and politics on the other, instead I think you see the two really come together where the, the intimate structure of liberal capitalist democracy many people see as monogamy. And I'm trying to make a plea for these irregular, irregular forms of intimacy. I'm trying to break and disrupt some of these frequently unthoughtful connections and to really think about, well, are these threats really so profound and aren't there ways in a truly functioning liberal democracy, I'll leave the capitalist side out, to embrace more alternative forms of, of, of irregularity. In recent months and years, the most publicized legal battles involving Americans' intimate lives have been over the legalization of same-sex marriage. And in some cases, opponents to marriage equality have made comparisons between same-sex marriage and polygamy. In 2010, Davis wrote an article analyzing those types of comparisons. And she concluded, It should be obvious that marriage between two people, regardless of the gender of those two people, is fundamentally different than being married to a bunch of people. And I actually draw on the work of some of our economics colleagues here at WashU, like Bob Pollack, who's done wonderful work on the economics of household bargaining. And so I show how household bargaining is different between two single spouses versus how it works between multiple people who are coming in and going. And the more people you add, it shouldn't surprise us, the more opportunities there are for people to take advantage of each other. There's also great opportunities for cooperation and collaboration and for people to reach their highest dreams in life. You know, how many, how many mothers wouldn't like another mother basically to stay home with her kids while she goes out and works? I mean, that's in many ways many women's dreams. Just most women don't dream that it would be a co-wife necessarily. So because it's still between two people, according to Davis, same-sex marriage fits neatly into existing family law. Just change a bunch of pronouns and the law still works. Polygamy is a very different story, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible to imagine laws and structures that would support it. Imagine a law firm. Typically, you start out with two people, and then they might add a third partner, and they might add a fourth partner, and then maybe the second partner leaves, and maybe they add a sixth partner. And it's constantly growing. People are constantly coming, constantly going. And we regulate partnership law because we realize that constant coming and going, that serial nature of it, it's a good thing, but it also creates very unique, specific opportunities for exploitation. So we have laws in place. And I suggest that same dynamic is at work in polygamy. People are coming and going, but it's in the intimate sphere. And that same dynamic creates opportunities for bad behavior that American family law does not tolerate. So I borrow some of the same legal principles, and I say we could do this if we want to. Now we turn to the second type of irregular intimacy that Davis brought up, prostitution. 
Once again, in order to see how the law regulates this type of intimacy and how it potentially could in the future, it's important to first understand the different ways that people think about it. So what I kind of tease out, which I think is kind of neat, is that if we look at the people who support prostitution, even among themselves, they are profoundly, profoundly contradictory. So one set of them says prostitution is just like any other kind of work. And it's just like any other kind of work where the people who do it are very vulnerable, like minors or people who wait tables. And they're just vulnerable to all kinds of risks. And so the state should come in and really regulate it very heavily. And I call them assimilationists, right, because they want to assimilate sex work into the larger structure of labor in the United States. But then there's also people who want to decriminalize it, but they make the opposite case. They say, no, because sex work is sexual, because it's so personal and so intimate, and because the state always persecutes prostitutes, they want to treat sex work like uncommodified sex that we all have, uncommodified intimacy that we all have, where they want to carve out a sphere of privacy for it, and they don't want the state to intervene at all, any more than we want the state to intervene in our in our regular bedrooms. And so they want no role for the state beyond just enforcing prostitutes' contracts and protecting them from violence. And so these two views of people who both are pro-sex work are completely opposed. Assimilationists want it heavily regulated to protect prostitutes, and what I call erotic exceptionalists don't want it regulated at all because they fear the role of, of the state. And so I argue, as I did with uh, polygamy, that the debate itself is, is hindering our ability to move forward. So now we've gotten a bit of an overview of Davis's work regarding polygamy and prostitution. Next up, pet inheritance. In the cases of both prostitution and polygamy, it's pretty clear to see how these could be considered irregular forms of intimacy. With pet inheritance, Davis brings non-sexual intimate attachments into the legal mix. These bonds expose that conventional family is not always the primary object of affection, particularly among the elderly. So when the wealthy elderly decline to leave their millions of dollars to their human adult children or their grandchildren, it exposes family bonds as ones of choice and not ones of nature or necessity. And it also reveals that what it means to be human at bottom and to love is not limited to sexual connections or to intergenerational parental child ties, but can also encompass what Donna Haraway calls the biosocial. It's not actually that recent or unusual of a phenomenon to have people leave objects or even thousands of dollars to their beloved pets. The first American case was in 1923. In most cases, the money simply goes into a trust and after the pet has died, it goes to charity or to somebody else. But it's stories like Leona Helmsley's that have gotten national attention and brought in the law. Because the debate is really only about these huge sums of money, Davis believes the underlying issue is one of class. In her words, the pets come in wearing her Marxist hat. There is, I think, a very firm sense about the intergenerational transfer of class status from older generations to younger generations that these wacky old people are disrupting. So Leona Helmsley, she disinherits her grandkids. 
right? There's, they should be billionaires. They should have Harry Helmsley's billions. And she disinherits them and gives $12 million to the dog. That's a frontal assault on class, the class structure in the United States. And tying it back to not just class structure, but really to capitalism, you know, if people lose their money in some kind of a cyclical market boom or bust, you know, we think it's sad, but it's natural and normal. But if you lose your family's money because someone left it to a pet, we see that as abnormal, irregular, and intolerable. As we wrap up this series on American identities, Davis points out that as humans and Americans, we are so much more than our national, racial, and religious affiliations. So much of our identity is our personal attachments. To me, I guess intimacy isn't even, I can't even disconnect it from identity because I think so much of the affective attachment, so much of the intimacy that we all do on a daily basis, whether it's the intimacy of caring for an aging parent or taking care of a young or dependent child, the intimacy of caring for a pet, the intimacy of who we date, who we sleep with, that all of these intimacies are actually who we are at bottom. And so when the law comes in and says, I'm going to criminalize you, for doing this, or I'm going to judicially overturn your, your attachments. To me, that's a profound assault on identity and people's abilities to really shape who they are through their affective attachments. To continue to study and understand the intersections of legal, cultural, and political issues, Davis co-founded the Law, Identity, and Culture Initiative here at Washington University. So the Law, Identity, and Culture Initiative, which I co-direct with Professor Rebecca Wanzo, really tries to serve as a bridge between the law school and arts and sciences. One of the things that's exciting about being at Washington University is our wonderful interdisciplinarity as emblematized in American cultural studies. And that, you know, so many people on our campus and off of our campus are very much interested in thinking through identity, intimacy, and its regulation. Many thanks to Adrian Davis for contributing to Hold That Thought. I'd also like to thank the American Culture Studies Program for helping to make this 10-part series possible. For a link to Davis's faculty profile and to hear more from the series, please visit thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes.